our New Testament reading is Matthew 6, verse 25 through chapter 7, verse 12. It can be found on page 811 of your Pew Bible. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O, o you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be, uh, be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your, your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time at One Ancient Hope, we're, we're very glad that you're here, um, and I do hope we get a chance to, to connect with you, to welcome you with you before, you before you take off. And right now, we're, we're moving through the Gospel of, of Matthew, and we've come to the Sermon on the Mount, which has functioned as its own mini-series, and we are uh, nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, in today's sermon, we, we find some of the most iconic, some of the most famous passages of the sermon. And before we dig into those together, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, 
We thank you for who you are. We, we thank you for your, for your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings. We thank you for the hope and the grace that it brings. Most of all, we thank you that it presents us with the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, um, that as we look at this passage, that you would apply this word to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts, and to trust more fully in Christ, your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, theologian Rowan Williams, he, he makes the following profound statement. He says, being a creature is in danger of becoming a lost art. Being a creature is in danger of becoming a lost art. And what does he mean here? Well, he's trying to remind us of what we have forgotten how we've forgotten to recognize and to receive all things as a gift from God. We've forgotten that absolutely everything is a gift. But in this passage, Christ reminds us that we are creatures, and he instructs us in the practices and the arts of being a creature. Christ, in fact, tells us not to be anxious because we are creatures. We're creatures that are more loved than the birds of the air who the Father graciously feeds each and every day. We're creatures that are more loved than the wildflowers, the lilies of the field whose petals and flowers have a display more splendid than King Solomon himself. And so Christ is actually making a very simple argument. Don't be anxious because you are a creature greatly loved by God the Father. Don't be anxious because you are a creature greatly loved by God the Father. But Christ is telling us if we don't rightly remember that we are a creature, then we will have anxiety. And I don't mean to say that there are no other causes of anxiety, but this is certainly one surefire cause of anxiety. And so if we are suffering anxiety, Christ directs us to examine our hearts, to ask ourselves, are we rejecting being creatures? Are we trying to be God in the place of God? And if we are, well, Christ tells us that absolutely we will be anxious. We will have anxiety. If we're not rightly related to our creator, and if we're not rightly re related to the rest of creation, to our fellow creatures, we will experience anxiety. And even more, conditions have never been more perfect for anxiety than our modern moment. We've never been so tempted to forget that we are creatures and to act in God's place. And in the first part of the passage that we looked at today, Christ directs us to creation. Again, the birds and the flowers. And he does so to remind us both that we are a part of creation. We're not God, we're a part of creation, but also that God the Father lovingly cares for his creation. And it's also important to note that this is not the first time that Christ has done this, not the first time that he's directed us to the good gifts of creation. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ tells us the following about the goodness and graciousness of our Heavenly Father. Christ says, our father makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
when ancient Israel went astray, very often, if not most often, it was to the god Baal. And Baal, well, he was god of the storm, god of the downpouring rain, the god that supposedly showered a dry and parched land. The Israelites, they knew that they needed rain. And they needed it so much that they were even willing to forsake the one true God to try to get it. But today, we don't feel the same necessity and the same need with that same urgency for water. And so we we rarely experience water and rain as the great gifts they are. And because of that, we forget to thank God for the rain. We forget to thank God for the good gift of water. The Israelites, they made the tragic error of attributing the gift of rain to Baal rather than God. But they would never make our tragic error of seeing this gift as anything other than a gift. For instance, uh, the historian Carl Truman, he describes how medieval farmers, they were dependent upon the sun and the rain. He says these these farmers, they could scatter and they could plow, but they had no ability to bypass difficult weather conditions, and they had no ability to control the conditions of the soil. As Truman writes, that might well have meant for many that they had no control over life or death. They were entirely at the mercy of the environment. Sun and rain were a matter of life and death. And because of this, medieval farmers, just like the Israelites, they saw themselves as vulnerable and needy and dependent upon the good gifts of creation and so the good gifts of God. Of course, modern irrigation is a very good thing. We're not meaning to condemn modern technology that can water plants even in drought conditions. Innovations like this save lives and saving lives is a very good thing, but we have to be careful. Because technology not only does the very good things of enhancing farming, of advancing things like medical treatment, but it also has the potential to change us in dangerous ways. As it rightly heals our bodies, we have to be careful that it doesn't wrongly deceive our hearts. As Truman goes on to write, technology affects in profound ways how we think about the world and imagine our place in it. Today's world is not the objectively authoritative place that it was 800 years ago. We think of it much more as a case of raw material that we can manipulate by our own power to our own purposes. And so technology can change the way that we live in and understand the world. We no longer believe that we're dependent upon the rain like our ancestors were. And so we no longer feel that same vulnerability and dependence and need to receive absolutely everything from the hand of God. Because of our technology, we can be fooled into thinking that we are masters of the universe, that we are masters of nature, that we're invulnerable to whatever nature can throw at us, that we no longer have to conform to this or that weather pattern, this or that season, this or that climate that we can do whatever we want in and with the world around us. However, the thing is, is that we can't escape the natural world forever. Eventually, 
we are forced to look back at the bird and to look back at the wildflower. For instance, theologian William Cavanaugh in his, in his excellent book, Being Consumed, he explained ways that such uses of our technology are coming to catch up to us. He writes the following, he gives the following example. Today's beef cattle in the United States go from 80 to 1,200 pounds in just 14 months on a crash diet of corn, protein supplements, and drugs. The calories come from corn, which is cheap and convenient, but wreaks havoc on the ruminant digestive system, which is designed for grass. The only way to keep the cattle from dying of bloating, acidosis, or abscessed livers as they fatten up on a grain diet is to give them steady doses of antibiotics. Still, many streams of bacteria survive. And of course, one of these strains, is, as Kavanaugh points out, is E. coli, which, as we all know, can also wreak havoc on human populations. But what Kavanaugh is telling us is that eventually the natural world catches up. Eventually, we have to realize that there's a natural order to things. Eventually, we have to realize that no amount of modern technology is going to bring forth a cherry tree from an acorn or bring forth a corn-consuming beef producer from a cow. Eventually, we have to realize that we are still dependent and vulnerable upon the sun and the rain. We have to realize that we are creatures. But Christ... Christ says this is good news. Christ says that we should embrace this. To be anxious. Well, that's to assume that everything is up to us, that we have to make everything right, that we have to provide for our every need. And if this is our burden that we take upon ourselves, we will be anxious. Eventually, the natural order will catch up. We'll be taking on our shoulders burdens that creatures were not meant to bear, only God can bear. But Christ invites us to rest and to remember that all that we have is a gift from God. But our technology tempts us to forget that we are creatures. And so Christ does not say, look at the bloated cow pumped full of corn and hormones, how it neither freely nor freely grazes nor grows. No, Christ says, look to the birds of the air who neither sow nor reap or gather into barns. That's the animal that Christ wants us to look at. If nature is a force-fed cow with corn and hormones, then creation must be a violent thing open to our force and manipulation free from the rules of any divine order that might limit what we want to do with it. But if creation is a bird, daily receiving what it needs from the hand of God, then being a creature is a very good thing indeed. And that would mean that every part of our existence is pure gift. So ask yourself, what is it that you are anxious about? Are you taking upon your shoulders things that you were never meant to bear? Think about it. At present, we are facing a number of things that perhaps in the immediate future point to a more difficult future. We have the war in Ukraine, inflation, deep political polarization and antagonism, rampant social strife, continuing COVID variants, 
breakdown in supply chains, only just to name a few. And for most of us, we can't really change any of this. We can work for good in our local context, and we should. But we don't have real agency on a national or international level. These burdens are beyond our bearing. And often, when we try to force things that we can't control, we actually cause more damage than good. And we know this even on a personal level. For instance, if you are anxious for God to bring you a spouse, you may let down your convictions and marry someone that you know you shouldn't marry, perhaps someone that doesn't share your commitment to Christ. If you're anxious for your children to succeed, you may overburden them, you may lay upon them expectations that actually push them away from you. Instead of remembering that God has a deeper love for your children than you ever could. If you're anxious for a particular job, you may lie on your resume and you may pretend to have skills and competencies that you actually don't have. Lies that may actually end up getting you fired from that job later down the road. In all of these ways, we're not looking to the birds. Instead, we're looking to the human manipulation of the force-fed cow. As Christ tells us, about seeking the things that we need. O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And Christ goes and carries this even further. He goes to compare the good gifts that God has given to us with the way that we give gifts to our children. It says, if your child asks for bread, which of you will give a stone? If your child asks for a fish, which of you would give a serpent? And if we who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more so our gracious and good Father in heaven? The assumption here is that all that the parent gives the child is intended for the child's good. And there's a deeper connection here because children often resist the good and wise intentions of their parents. And they do so because they don't understand what the parents are doing. Maybe you've experienced this every time you've taken your child to the doctor to get a shot. All of the child experiences and all of the child understands is pain. But as parents, we know that pain is a necessary part of the good of the vaccine that the child is receiving. And to be sure, think about it, if we gave our kids everything that they asked for, if, they, if we let them determine everything that they want, and I say this speaking as a former kid, well, there's a pretty good chance that the house would be burned down by the end of the day. But we have to ask ourselves, are adults doing much better? A little, perhaps, but in our own way, adults, too, would set fire to our souls if we got everything we wanted. Tim Keller is, is helpful here in thinking about how God, our Father, gives us the good gifts of fish and bread, even if at the time they seem like stones and serpents. I've used this quote before, but it's, it's, it's so helpful. He tells us, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. 
God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God, God may even bring very hard things into our life. And eventually all of us, all of us will face very hard things. Sickness, death, loss. And so we have to ask, what are the hard things that we are facing now? Illness, unemployment, rejection, professional failure, unfulfilled hopes and longings, parental struggles. And I say this with with trepidation, but what ways do these hardships have the potential to form you in ways that nothing else could? How can these situations cause you to know and trust God in ways that no other circumstances could offer? How is God forming you through these hard things? And this is not an easy question, and it offers no easy answers. But if our God really is good, and if he seeks our good, then this is the question that we have to keep asking and asking and asking ourselves. Do we have the faith? Do we have the creatureliness to receive everything in our life from the hand of God? of our good and gracious Father. And there are no shortcuts here. This is a hard, lifelong discipline. But what other choice do we have? We simply don't have the control over our lives, the control over the world that we wish that we did. But still, we can reject, we can strive against this truth and still continue to reject our creaturehood by seeking a control that's just not possible for any creature. And this brings us to one of the stranger lines of the passage at hand, when Christ tells us, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And this passage, it can be understood in in many ways, but one important connection here is with Jesus' earlier admonition. We we read it earlier. When when speaking of our anxiety that comes from the way that we seek our needs, Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And when Christ here speaks of Gentiles, he is speaking specifically of those who have separated themselves from the covenant community of God. And theologian Peter Lightheart, he points out that pigs and and dogs were in first century Jewish writings a kind of of euphemism or or slang, both for the Roman Empire and a kind of pejorative or negative term for Gentiles. And, And I don't believe that Christ here is condoning this use of language, this terminology, but Think about what came before with the birds and the wildflowers. What he's doing, I think, is drawing a further connection between creation and the human condition because he's assuming that we all know how pigs act, their aggressiveness, uh, the way that they trample. And Christ is telling us that they act like the powers of this world, the Roman Empire being Christ's contemporary example. And Lightheart fills this out by pointing out that there are many, many times in Israel's history where they go and seek the help and the protection of a pagan neighbor. And then once they've paid off this pagan neighbor, often with treasures from the temple, 
what we might call the very pearls of God, well, those nations often turn around, attack, and trample over them. Lightheart says this is a case of casting pearls before swine. And so Christ tells us that we must not first seek the resources and the protection from political powers, but again, from our good and gracious Father who lovingly cares for our needs. We must not first seek what the Gentiles seek, what those seek who separate themselves from the covenant community of God. If we do, we will find ourselves casting our pearls before swine. When we do this, we give our utmost trust to political powers, and that was a problem then, that was a problem for the early church, and that continues to remain a problem for today. Uh, Lightheart writes the following, he says, This was a particular temptation for the early Christians, persecuted by the Jews and later by the Romans. There is always a subtle temptation for persecuted Christians to think that they will be safe if they could get the right people in power, or at least if they could get the people in power to defend them. We should vote, and we should vote for the right people. But what we must never do is trust that any government, no matter how favorable, will be our patron and provider. And so one important meaning of not casting our pearls before swines is don't place your ultimate trust in anything other than God, specifically not political powers. And this is just another way that we are called to be a creature. Politics is a good thing and Christians should participate in politics, but if it becomes our ultimate trust, we're going to fall victim to anxiety. In modern America, as we all know, this is rampant. And so we have to continually ask ourselves, do we find ourselves going up and down with each news headline? Do we find ourselves outraged or grief-stricken or consumed with anxiety as we digest each day's news? Do we believe that each new election is either going to bring the deliverance or the destruction of our nation? If so... Perhaps we are trusting too much in something other than God. And when we do that, we reject our creaturehood. Perhaps if you do that, you are casting your pearls before swine. If we rest our ultimate trust in any government, nation, or political power, we are going to be anxious because we're going to be asking it to do what only God can do. And this is also connected with the matter of judgment. In this passage, Christ tells us that we have to be very careful with our judgment, and this too is a matter of creaturehood. Exercising harsh judgment is just one more way that we play God. What we do is we make our own standards in order to judge our neighbor and, and to leave ourselves innocent, to leave ourselves unscathed. We condemn the neighbor for the speck in their eye, but we completely ignore and excuse the log in our own eye. We reject our creaturehood by taking the place of the ultimate judge himself. Again, we try to be God in God's own place. And this too is a burden that we are not meant to bear. This too will be a burden that leads to anxiety. It's another way we try to force something that only God himself can provide we try to convince ourselves that we, we are the good people in that group over there. They're the bad ones. 
And so we have no guilt. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We're in the right. It's, it's those people who are in the wrong. And so we apply some category of our own making in order to excuse ourselves and to judge our neighbor. And often this is directly connected with the matter of casting pearls before swine, the matter of politics. For example, a recent article in The Guardian, it gives the following shocking statistic. Animosity toward those in opposing, sorry, animosity towards those in the opposing party is higher than at any time in living memory. 42% of registered voters believe Americans in the other party are, quote, downright evil. Think about that. 42% of registered voters think that people who don't share their political beliefs are downright evil. There's no examining the log in our own eye. There is only me and people who are like me against a bunch of evil people over there. And in doing this, we are playing God. We are rejecting our creaturehood. We're replacing the law of God with some political platform or position. We're using this standard that we've made to condemn others and exonerate and excuse ourselves. But Christ won't let us do this as Christ summarizes the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Christ tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and so we must apply the same standard of justice, the comprehensive ethic of God, both to us and to our neighbors. Yes, there is a time to confront the neighbor about the speck in their eye, but only after we have confessed and repented of the log in our own eye. Both we and our neighbors are creatures, and so we both are subject to the very same unflinching law of God. And so let me get specific here and, and, and maybe a bit uncomfortable. Earlier, we talked about the cow that is force-fed, pumped with hormones, and made to go from 80 to 1,200 pounds in 14 months. And if we were to carve up this issue into American political partisanship, one side would probably react against this, seeing this as a destruction of, of the natural, as the manipulation of the goodness of the natural order. And one side would see it as the advance of humanity over the limits handed down to us by nature and, and biology. However, let's, let's switch the issue. For instance, let's consider the words of Simone de Beauvoir, a thinker who has set many of the philosophical foundations for much modern thinking about biological sex and gender. She writes in her book, The Second Sex, nature does not define woman it is she who defines herself by reclaiming nature for herself in her half-activity. She will then go on to write, nothing is natural. De Beauvoir is, is advocating and, and will go on to do so explicitly for the use of technology to overcome the biological conditions and so the limitations that nature has given the female body. 
The use of technology that she has in mind here, it, it deals specifically uh, with issues of fertility and, and pregnancy, but this same ethos will go on to inform technologies that attempt to change a biologically female body into a male body, and of course, vice versa. And to be sure, what she says here about the female body has import for the male body as well. As one commentator writes of Du Beauvoir's work, it asserts, the idea that biology is ultimately regarded as a form of tyranny, a potentially alienating form of external authority. The body is to be overcome. Its authority is to be rejected. Biology is to be transcended by the use of technology. And this topic, it, it demands more time and, and sensitivity than I can give it here. And I do apologize if this comes across as crass. But what I want to point out is that, generally speaking, the same political paradigm that advocates for the naturalness of the cow against the unnatural technology of the hormone-infused force-feeding of corn, which is something that the cow isn't even designed to eat, well, it would at the same time advocate for the technological alteration of the human body. And of course, inversely, the side that argues for technology over the naturalness of the cow generally advocates for the naturalness of the body over and against technology. Neither side is consistent here. Each lacks a comprehensive ethic. Each supports naturalness to a point, but also our need and right to make nature whatever we deem that it should be. The natural world has authority here, but not there, and vice versa. And so without a comprehensive ethic that calls everyone to account, modern partisan politics carves up the world in ways that lets us pick and choose our ethics without any need for coherence. It lets us, for instance, blame our neighbor for rejecting nature while we go on rejecting nature in our own excusable way. But we have to ask ourselves, are we creatures or not? Is the created world a gift or not? Are we to receive all of creation, whether it's cows or human bodies, as good gifts or raw material to fashion according to our own wishes? Remember that Christ calls us to look at the birds, and so let's look at the birds again. There's a parable that a philosopher tells that, that I think is helpful here. He says that our temptation is to be like the bird who thinks that if it wasn't for air resistance, I could fly so much faster. But of course, the air resistance is the very thing that lets, that enables the bird to fly in the first place. Yes, the bird is limited by air resistance, but it's also enabled by air resistance. What is the constraint of the bird's flight? is also the very condition of the bird's flight. Might we as humans find ourselves in a similar situation? Might natural constraints be the very condition of our flourishing? Just as we have to conform to a grammar in order to have the freedom to speak a language, just as we have to conform to musical scales in order to have the freedom to compose symphonies, might conforming to the natural order give us the freedom to flourish as the kind of creatures that we actually are? 
C.S. Lewis thinks so. He writes, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality, and the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is technique. It's a distinctly modern temptation not to receive creation and try to conform ourselves to it, but instead see the world as a bunch of stuff with no inherent meaning. And so creation becomes raw material at the mercy of whatever we would like to do with it. And so we ruin our ability to see creation as a gift. We ruin our ability to be creatures. And this places the responsibility of being human fully upon our shoulders, a weight that we cannot bear. But again, Christ tells us everything for the creature is a gift. Not only our existence, not only the good gifts of creation, but even salvation itself is a gift. To be a creature is to know that you need. And to look at the birds is to look at needy, independent, and vulnerable creatures being needy, independent, vulnerable creatures. Look at them, but also look somewhere else. And this too, this other place that we need to look, it's also a matter of food. Birds eat what they're supposed to eat. Birds eat what they're designed to eat. When cows are enabled and allowed to be cows, cows will eat what they're supposed to eat, what they're designed to eat. But humans have a dangerous dignity of being able to eat by choice what they should not eat. In fact, what they are forbidden to eat. When we first rejected being creatures, when we first attempted to be God in God's place, we fell victim to the lie of the serpent. It's a lie that we continue to fall victim to. If you eat this fruit, then you will be like God. If you eat this, you will no longer be creatures, but you will be God in God's place. Take and eat. Take and eat and so you can become a creature that becomes God. Take and eat to be God. But this is not the end of the story. Because Christ, he feeds us with another meal. Christ too says, take and eat. Eat this bread, which is my body broken for you. Drink this wine, which is my blood shed for you. This is not the meal of the serpent, the meal of the creature attempting to become God. No, this is the meal of the Savior, the meal of God actually becoming a creature. This is not the meal of our taking God's place, but the meal of God taking our place. This is the meal in which Christ says to you, you are the ones who deserve this. The ones who deserve the punishment of sin, the ones who deserve the breaking of the body and the shedding of blood, the ones who deserve to be on this altar, on this table. But just as you ate that fruit so long ago to take my place, 
I am giving you this meal because I have taken your place. This should be your body and blood on the table, but it is I who have endured the breaking and bleeding on the cross, and I've done it for you. So take and eat. It is a gift, pure gift. Eat it by faith. Like the bird, this is a meal that you cannot sow or reap or gather into barns. But just like the bird, receive this meal gladly and gratefully. Receive it and become the creature that the Heavenly Father intends you to be. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that all is gift. Help us to receive it as such. Our existence, everything in creation, in the good gift of Jesus Christ. We have sought to be God in your place, and you have saved us by being creature in our place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.